you're listening to High Temperature Times. Maybe not your favorite podcast, but definitely your favorite refractory podcast. My name is Griffin Patterson, and I'm an application specialist with Harbison Walker International. If there's one thing I learned about science over my far too many years in academics, it's that unless you're in a laboratory or a textbook, rules just don't really apply. In the real world, assumptions and theory don't hold a candle to the sheer number of variables involved in getting stuff done. So everything ends up a little bit closer to a black art. This couldn't be more true than it is with properly mixing castable refractories. That said, we've got the basic principles and ideas for you to follow, and this month I'm excited to have research scientist Maggie Raleigh here to share some of them with you, along with that certain je ne sais quoi that you can only get from working 10 years in the industry. But before we get mixed up in that, let's dive into our technical marketing inbox. If you've got a question for the podcast, shoot us an email at technical-marketing at thinkhwi.com. This month, we've got a question from Jeffrey Clark asking, I'm doing a small job and I don't need a full bag of refractory. Can I just mix up what I need and put the bag away for later? Let me go grab a bag of chips from my kitchen real quick to, for a little show and tell example. You know how you open up the bag and all the big chips are on top? And below that you have some slightly broken chips before you get to the bottom and you have to tip that bad boy up and drink the crumbs? Well, monolithics are kind of like that, but nowhere near as tasty. Bags tend to settle out and all those different particle sizes all find their own place in the bag. So if you just scoop 10 pounds off the top, there's a good chance you're getting more of one particle size and less of another. In a perfect world, we'd say to run that entire bag through a sample splitter in which you'd pour the whole bag into four to eight equal size buckets. But not everyone has one of those in their garage. I know I don't. Second best, and honestly a distant second, would be to put that in a much larger container and mix it up real good before you scoop some out. Still, the best bet is to mix the whole bag. Besides, those bags have the job of making sure the moisture outside doesn't get into the refractory and start activating the cement. So if you want to save the rest for later, don't wait too long or that second batch won't work out too well. I should state that people have been doing it their own way for decades, but you're buying HWI because you want the best out of your refractory, and we're here to make sure you get that. Thanks, Jeff, for the question. We look forward to more questions next month. All right, all good in the hood. Let's talk castables, and I can't do that without Maggie. Welcome. Thanks, Griffin. <laughs> you want to care to lead us off with a little background about you and your work with HWI? Yeah, so as Griffin mentioned, I'm a research scientist. I've worked with Harbison Walker since 2013. My background is actually in physics, um, but there's a lot of overlap of science and knowing how materials work is part of the industry that is physics. Um, but I started off as a quality technician, actually, which is where a lot of my knowledge of installing castables and mixing in general comes from. But obviously with product development, which is more of what I'm doing now, I learn it firsthand. I'm the one that comes up with the product to begin with. I would hope I would know what I would be talking about with it. Okay, so this is a refractory podcast with listeners in the refractory industry, but I want to set a little baseline knowledge here. I pick up a bag of Quickcrete from the home improvement store, I slap some in a wheelbarrow, add water, and fuss it around with a shovel for a bit, right? Easy peasy. Why can't I do that with refractory materials? Why does it have to be so much more difficult? Well, uh, I guess the joke would be refractory is stubborn, so obviously it's not going to be as easy. But... Ooh, a dictionary joke, I like <laughs> dictionary that. Dictionary joke, yeah. <laughs> um, so... <sighs> Part of it is it's hard in general. If you talk to somebody who's a concrete expert, they'll tell you. You have to learn how it feels, right? Well, refractory is similar in the sense that you have to know 
how much water you can add, how much water you should add, because if you add too much, you'll end up with soup. If you add too little, you'll end up with dry clumps all throughout. But refractory in particular has just been designed to do well at high temperatures. And that technical deep dive into design has made it a little less user-friendly at the end of the day. And that's the black magic, if you will, of making it difficult to work with. Are, are there any castable products that are so easy a caveman could use them? Well, I would use caution with just saying anybody can use it with, you know, no experience <laughs> at all. A two-year-old can walk up and just, you know. That was actually one of the jokes that I pitched for, uh, for gun tech is it's so easy a baby could use it and have my son holding a, holding a, holding a yeah. gunning rig or a gunning <laughs> nozzle. But I guess, you know, you're right. It's not, nothing's that easy. But anyways, go on. <laughs> but yeah, I, so the conventional castables, that's the generic label of the more robust family. Um, some of those brands would be like KS4 um, or even any of the KS family, um, Mizzou Castable um, and Greencast family brands. That's another product that's a little easier to use. So what, why, what makes those easier to use? The main reason why they're easier to use is they have more um, cement. They're cement modded in general. And the more cement means that the system that creates setting behavior or mixing behavior is more robust. The less cement you have, the lower cement or even cement-free castable families uh, have other engineered characteristics we'll say that go into it which goes back to the well I've designed it it's a little more finicky because I've added other things that just take a more expert hand to figure out yeah I mean really leaning into that like back to the quick read example that stuff is a hundred percent cement isn't it right yep. it's so you if not you've added an extra like additional thing to help use it faster which is again going to play well with the cement so compared to something that has maybe, you know, 6%, 8% cement, comparing that to a, I don't know, 90% quickcrete, yeah, it might not be so easy. A caveman could use it with a wheelbarrow and a shovel, but it's still more user-friendly than something that would have, say, half a percent or no cement, right? right? And I will add a little science to the back end here, and I'm sure Maggie can add more, being significantly more qualified to say this than me, but... The cement binder in your refractories, it acts as a flux at high temperatures. Um, so by choosing a more user-friendly high cement mix, you'll see the lower hot strengths and you'll see lower refractoriness in these brands. You know, everything's a trade-off, I guess. But I think it's going to be important to step back a little bit. Like let's, let's talk mixer types, right? From what I've gathered so far, we're going to need something a little bit better than a shovel and a wheelbarrow. So what type of mixers are out there that, you know, will work or, and why do they work? So the two main like types of mixers that we use for uh, castables would be a pan mixer and a paddle mixer. The basic idea, whatever mixer you do end up using, is you want to make sure the material is covered with the water that you're adding. Everything's mixed together really well. Everything's been coated. Everything's kind of come in contact with everything in the mix. And so with a pan mixer, if you can imagine your head, the pan mixer, it is like a bowl that you would have for 
uh, making chili or something um, that you just have a spoon that you're just stirring around, right? But instead of a spoon or your hand or um, I can't think of the word for it, but little hand mixers. I, I'm, I'm thinking like a whisk, you mean? Yeah, like a whisk type I'm thing. I'm thinking, you know, uh, this is along the lines of something people might be more familiar with, like a KitchenAid. Right, right. KitchenAid is really what it's similar to. So the pan mixer is like a KitchenAid, right? You have this blade attachment and it rotates around inside of this bowl or this this pan. Um, and so that's a pan mixer. It has that rotational method of mixing. And before you get into the, the paddle mixer, can you tell us a little bit about the blade? Because, I mean, I, I imagine a, a KitchenAid, right? It has that sort of almost like a fan with the thin fingers that go through the material that it's mixing. And I imagine that it's different for refractories. Yes, yes. Um, although I guess if you're using a KitchenAid to mix your small batch, like in Jeff's question, it would be that. But the pan mixer, it has sort of knife finger edges. So instead of a fan type effect, it's rotational um, and it covers from the bottom so that all of it is touching and all of it's mixing. And then the other one you were saying is the paddle mixer. Yeah, so the paddle mixer is a little different in the sense that instead of a bowl where you put the material, it's kind of like um, if you've ever played a game of dice, you put the dice in and you kind of roll it around so it helps with the gravity fed. So you have your, your mix in like a tumbler and then it spins it up and it falls down. So okay. rather than like left to right, it's up and down. Um, and so like the knives edges, you have more of a paddle-ish type of shape um, so that it sort of feeds the material in a molar method almost with the how it responds and speed wise um i don't know if molar is a common term or not it probably is not it's so the idea is that it's it's slopping the material back You're, you pick it up and it sort of slops itself so it uses itself to help mix you know and, and we'll draw more similarities to cooking as we talk about castable mixology. But when I'm cooking eggs, right, and you're trying to scramble the eggs, you want to move the eggs out of the way and let the liquid fill in that space. And I imagine it's it's very similar with mixing castables because we're trying not to add energy to the mix. We're trying to just allow the water to get into dry places and spread more homogeneously through the material. Is that is that correct? Yes. Because you don't necessarily want more energy because it'll create more heat, which will cause the cement to set off, first of all. And second of all, the more energy you have, you're wasting the excess energy. There's there's no point for it. You want to have minimal energy applied and have it blend up as best as you can. All right. And talk to me a little bit about the importance of using clean equipment. What do we mean by clean? Do I need to get in there and like with a soap and a sponge and like scrub down every little surface? If you want to, it doesn't hurt, other than maybe your back <laughs> and your fingers. <laughs> but what we're really looking for is we don't want cross-contamination. So if you've had material in it before and it's caked to the equipment, you don't want chunks of the leftovers in your brand new stuff that you're making. And so it needs to be clean enough that you're not going to get residual. And the other thing to really watch for is uh, unlike chemistries. 
So if you have a low purity cement and then you move on to, okay, I'm going to do this high purity cement, this really ultra good uh, mix, then you're likely going to skunk it because the low purity has all these chemicals in it that make it low purity that when it comes into contact with the high purity it interacts with the lime and the high purity of the cement causing it to flash set on you which means you'll cake it even more in your equipment and you'll be spending a lot of time cleaning <laughs> and to put some put some perspective in that low purity versus high purity you're talking about portland cement yes correct so, I mean, most refractories use an aluminosilicate-based cement, correct? That's mm-hmm. more refractory, right? But, you know, that's, that's what also requires refractories to need dried out at high temperatures compared to a Portland cement, which can be dried out at room temperature. So if you're mixing a refractory castable that does not use Portland cement, that uses that aluminosilicate-based cement in something that previously had Portland cement, that's where you're going to get that flash set. Mm-hmm. So you got to clean that out, huh? And yeah. the, the other example for cross-contamination is um, using hydrated lime. That That's something that people will occasionally add to help shorten the set time, to help things go faster. But if you add it either too much or there's traces of it in a mix that doesn't, that's sensitive to that, it, you'll, you could flash set mm-hmm. it as well. Mm. So we've set ourselves up for success. We've got a bag of Green Clean 60 sitting in our paddle mixer, and we go to add water. My mama taught me to always add the wet to the dry when baking a cake. So I can do that one myself, right? You don't need need a podcast to teach me that. But the mixing instructions tell me only to use potable water. Why is that? So potable, for those who don't know, which probably most people do, but it means that you can drink it. So it means it's been purified. It means that you don't have any harsh chemicals or minerals in particular especially things like iron you know you have an old school piping system with lead in it or something these are the types of metals that are going to interact with your refractory and they're going to cause chemical reaction that's going to harm your properties in the end if not mess up your setting characteristics at the initial start of the install but the other caution so potable, you sometimes gets treated, right? If you're using chlorine to treat it, as an example, uh, if you have too high of a chlorine level, it can also interact with your refractory um, and cause it to have bad properties at the end of it. Um, and so you don't want to use like pool water that has a high chlorine or has alkalis in it um, because you've treated the water. If it's potable, that means that any of those levels of chlorine or alkalis are going to be low enough that it'll be safe to use with the refractory and you'll get the best results. All right. So it's at this point that I want to share a little data we have on over or underwatering your castable refractory. For one, the the aforementioned user-friendliness with high cement mixes or conventional castables uh, comes into play with the amount of water that can be safely used. So a material like KS4 will have good properties with water ranges from 0.6 to 1 gallon per bag. Meanwhile, an ultra-low cement castable like Ultra Green 45, you'll need to keep it as tight as to 0.3 to 0.4 gallons. That means user-friendly mixes can have a half-gallon swing without affecting properties compared to a mere 350 milliliters for an ultra-low cement mix. 
I guess uh, no real tailoring your flow with those ones. Nope. <laughs> you get what you get. <laughs> so, but when you do add too much water, making it more like what you want to see, you know, you're going to do bad things to your properties. So take a low cement uh, mix like VersaFlow 60. It calls for 5.5% water, getting you 155 uh, pounds per cubic foot density, 1600 PSI MOR, and it sets in 7 hours. If you add just 1% more water, it's not even a single can of soda pop, to your 55 pound bag, you're going to drop your density by 5 pounds per cubic foot, cut your strength by 20%, and add an extra hour to its final set. Add another percent too much water, and your density is going down by 15 pounds per cubic foot, your strength is cut in half, and it's not going to set for nearly a full day, compared to the 7 hours before. But we get it, right? Your mixed refractory should look like the stuff that comes out of a concrete mixer, right? You know, we have all these preconceived notions of what a castable should look like when it's mixed, but maybe Maggie can help set the record straight for, you know, what a, what consistency a castable should be. So the castable is going to depend upon the brand, right? Some brands are a little less flowing than other brands. but And, yeah, recognizing that we have hand casting, pump casting, self-flowing, vibe casting right but and we specifically design things so that they are that way but often the, the properties are going to reflect that as well so when i was talking about the stuff that as i said comes out of a concrete mixer that would be pump casting probably consistency because it's flowing out it's poor it's almost the term we use self-flowing is sort of it, it moves with some bit of gravity so pumping it's it doesn't flow quite as well, but it does a little bit. If you give enough grade, it'll it'll flow. But with castables in general, what you're looking for is a consistency that it, it's all cohesive. Everything's wet, uh, and it can hold together, right? It's not just falling apart in clumps. But it's not so wet that it's oozing through your fingers, unless you want a self-flowing mix. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about the, the ball and hand test. Yeah, so the ball and hand test is what we use, or how we describe that test of, is this the right consistency? You basically take a scoop of material, you put it in your hand, um, and if it basically stays in its shape, but you can put an impression on it with your other hand, or it's slightly starting to flow out of your, between your fingers as you give it some wiggling action, then uh, it, you it? probably get stress, right, right? Right. Once you apply a little bit of force with your hand mm -hmm. and uh, it should start to move a little bit. And that's the consistency that you're looking for. And it's ball in hand because you put a ball in your hand. So refractories, you know, they're, they're not like your regular Newtonian fluids like water, right? They don't, they don't flow consistently. So if you add a little bit of force, their flow properties change and, and I think typically they're along the lines of a thixotropic material. You know, think about oobleck, right, from yeah. Dr. Seuss, the old cornstarch and water, right? If you try and punch it with your hand, it's solid. But if you slowly dip your fingers into it with a low with lower force, then it behaves more like a liquid. So refractories kind of do that, right? So if you add a force to it by, like, shaking it a little bit or, or trying to squeeze your hand, you'll notice that the properties change. And that's sort of the importance of the ball and hand test is you'll see that it still remains solid mostly, but it droops a little bit, especially as you apply a little bit of uh, vibration motion. Mm -hmm. 
I remember the first time I saw Fixotropic casting, true Fixotropic casting. This stuff was like was like a, a sort of a wet sand, right? It was com- it was a completely solid material, and they put it on top of this mold on a vibe table, and they a- and they added vibration, and this entire thing just became like like a waterfall of material. It was it was incredible, right? I mean, and that was a very specifically tailored mix to have extremely Fixotropic properties, but almost all refractors will behave at least in something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Similarly, at, at the very least. Mm-hmm. In that last little breakout, I, I mentioned set times. Can you tell me a little bit about how they're defined and why we're so sure of what a set time is? So set time in a, in a generic term would be the material is solid enough that it's not going to move on its own anymore. End of working time type of thing as far as installation purposes go. Um, from a more technical standpoint, the set time, especially for our cement-based castables, is going to be based off of the chemical interaction whenever the c- cement no longer is reacting, basically. <laughs> um, and so it's an exothermic reaction, which means it's giving off heat. And whenever it's reached that peak, the height of interaction, it will have the max temperature that it's going to give off for the interaction. And that's what we call the final set time for our mixes. And that's how we're so sure, because the laws of physics are going to continue to apply unless you change the chemistry, but we know what our products are made of. And so we know that if everything's as it should be, the set time will be what it is, because that's the chemistry that it has, and that's when the interaction is going to take place. Now, obviously that might vary once you add in some outside forces. Um, <laughs> so it's well, ex- What did I say earlier, right? A right. textbook or laboratory? Right. right. You're a laboratory. laboratory. I'm a laboratory. This is, <laughs> this is how I know. Uh, but real life isn't laboratory. Um, yeah. we, we do our best to have it be close. Um, but if it's 100 degrees out and you are setting pouring your your castable in the mix um you can expect it to probably set faster because you've added heat to this chemical interaction and so it's gonna not only interact more quickly but you'll have a higher peak temperature and it's going to be shorter and conversely at cold temperatures you're going to slow that chemical interaction down and so it's going to take longer to set Before we get into the next question on mix times, I should bring you this convenient commercial break. We've talked about the sensitivity of certain refractories to water additions, and spoiler alert, it's no different with mix times. If you're using an HWI monolithic castable, consider downloading the mobile tools app. In there, you can search for the product you're using, put in how many pounds you'll be mixing, and it'll tell you how much water to add and give you a timer to mix it. It puts all the know-how you need to mix a castable right into the palm of your hand. I'll put a link to the app in the description of the episode. All right, anyways, back to your regularly scheduled programming and, you know, all that. Let's talk mix times. They're very specific. Why is that? Well, it goes back to making sure that your material has fully homogeneously mixed together. And so the guidelines that we give are based on what we've experienced and what the company as a whole has seen of 
these mix times are going to work the best for this product. It's typically going to be between five and eight minutes, although there's exceptions to every rule, but that's about the time frame that we usually allow for. Alrighty, we've done it. We've mixed a castable. I guess we're getting beyond the scope of the topic at hand, but do you have any tips or tricks for the actual casting process? Like with leveling or vibrating or even any tips or tricks we might have missed the opportunity to speak on earlier? Well, so I would definitely say start with the app that we provide. That That is the quick, easy, hey, this is all the information on this product type of thing that it would give you guidance or at least a, a starting point for where to start with the water, where to start with how things are looking. Beyond that, some actual, like, I've, I've, I've poured my castable, but it's not moving, right? I can't, I've, I've tried padding it because that sometimes helps get, again to the energy applied. It will, it'll help it flow a little, but it's not going, I need to fill this mold or whatever. What am I supposed to do? If you use a pencil, vibrator it will apply a force and you can insert it partially and that will help move the material a little bit more uh, if you have sort of the opposite problem you have this self-flowing castable or this really wet castable um, some cautions would be that um, don't do it on a slope that you're not prepared for it will flow if gravity helps it <laughs> so um, I was at a installation with a rotary kiln and they were very careful to make sure that there was a, a wall on the one side so it didn't go more than it was supposed to. Then of course there's the curing and the dry out process, which I spoke with Jeff Bogan about many moons ago, if you're interested in continuing this education. And speaking of which, then the game changes a little bit when you're doing all this in cold weather environments. So for tips, tricks, and doodads about how to get the most out of your install in those frigid weather settings, Check out our episode, Low Temperature Times. That said, thank you so much, Maggie. If you didn't believe me that this is all black magic before, maybe you're on board now after hearing what Maggie had to say. You've got, you've got to have the touch, and Maggie's got it. If you'd like to learn more about our castable technology and proper mixing techniques, reach out to us at tactical-marketing at thinkhwi.com. Until then, make sure you've got that subscribe box checked and your ringer on loud so you don't miss any HTT episodes going forward. No matter what, though, thanks for listening.